Good morning, everybody. So today we're starting a new sermon series on Nehemiah, and if there's one word that I think sums up the whole kind of series, it would probably be rebuilding. And um, so what I, want to, what I want to do today is kind of set the scene, uh, as well as go through in a little bit of detail chapter one that we've read already, set the scene for the rest of the series. Um, and, then, um, and then have a think about, well, you know, what can we learn from chapter one and what might, the, sort of what might this all mean for us um, and in our society and, uh, and in our lives? Before I start, or as I start preparing um, you know, to go through a piece of scripture, I do kind of like to look at the background and the context and everything, so please kind of bear with me because I think it's really interesting. It's good to know the context in which things have been written and, and then we can maybe more easily sort of transpose it into what it might mean for us today. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were written, um, we think, about roughly about 400 BC, between 430 and 400 BC. And they were written primarily to, as a, as a historical record, but also to encourage the people, uh, the Judeans who'd returned from exile from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Apparently, it's a little bit difficult to print, pin down precisely, even given some of the historical references, you know, when it was written, because I understand there were three kings called Artaxerxes, and often high priests who were mentioned in both the books, they often took the names of their grandfathers. So when historians look at these things, it's difficult for them to, kind of, to piece all these things together, but about 400 BC. Another interesting fact that I learned about Ezra and Nehemiah is that originally um, they were uh, put together as one book. And um, apparently um, in Hebrew manuscripts and in the Talmud, which is the collection of Jewish rabbinical law, they're still contained uh, in one book. Uh, Josephus, the Roman historian, refers to them as being one book. Um, and in the oldest versions of the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, it's also one book. So that's interesting. And it was only from about 200 uh, after Christ, so about 200, that they started to be separated. And, and, it, and I think they, apparently the reason, one of the main reasons why uh, they were kind of thought to be at least originally separate books was that they contained some of the same information. So in Ezra 2 and in Nehemiah 7, apparently, not apparently, in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, there are two lists of the people who've who left Babylon and came back to Jerusalem, and they're almost identical. So why would one author who was writing one single book you know, repeat himself in, sort of, or, or, uh, in two different places? Anyway, a bit of interesting uh, background there. Um, so Nehemiah, as a book, if you've not read it recently, is essentially it's a narrative, um, it's a historical record, it contains lists and genealogies, which are very useful. Um, but more interesting than that, I think, is, is it, it contains lots of thoughts and prayers of Nehemiah and it's almost like it's a, at times it's a first person documentary um, of what happened and how Nehemiah himself responded and, and what he was thinking and feeling and praying to God at the time so it's, it's quite a personal insightful book in many places as well as being a little bit sort of dry and historical in other places. Um, the, the major theme through the book of Nehemiah is that God works sovereignly, and he works sovereignly to redeem his people, to bring them back uh, physically from Babylon, from exile, but also to bring us back to him um, for, you know, to, to fulfill his redemptive promise to us. In total, Nehemiah, um, so the, to, to give you an outline of the whole book as we're starting the series, 
So we're going to look at chapter 1 today. And chapter 1 is essentially, as we've read, it's a, um, it's a report from Judah as to what's going on uh, there. Um, and it's, it's Nehemiah's immediate response to, to what he's hearing in this report. So that's what we're going to concentrate on today. Later on, um, to go through the book, and this is, this is also a little bit of a spoiler, to go through the, the whole book of Nehemiah, but I think it's useful for us to, sort of, to understand the, you know, what's going to happen next, if you like. Um, he talks about you know, Nehemiah's request of the king, the journey of the peoples back to um, Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the wall, the physical walls and gates that we read about so that had been destroyed, uh, so the return of the exiles, and then the rebuilding, more importantly, the rebuilding of the community. Uh, in Jerusalem. So the physical, it was physical rebuilding, but also a social rebuilding as well. And maybe that's what's more sort of relevant for us sort of today. So essentially it's the rebuilding of Jewish life uh, and, and the, uh, the rebuilding and the reestablishment of the covenant um, of God uh, and, and also to, to set Jerusalem back uh, to be a solid uh, ground to, uh, to receive the Messiah sort of 400 years later. So he's bringing them back to Jerusalem. Okay, so I'm going to fairly quickly sort of go through. There are only 11 verses uh, in Nehemiah 1, and, um, and there's lots of information in them. And the first one sort of contains loads of information. So it says, the words of Nehemiah, it, said, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as he was in Susa, the capital, or the citadel, sorry, the citadel. So um, it's really... It's almost wonderful, I think, in the Bible as to how the names of some of the characters that we read about, you know, are quite insightful. So, Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. And as we, as we read, you know, the, his instant reaction, his prayer, you know, clearly Nehemiah relies on and is comforted by God. Um, so, he's kind of fully reflecting the meaning of his name. For the Babylonian scholars among you, Chislev apparently is November and December. Um, and, um, and the 20th year was probably the 20th year of one of the kings of Artaxerxes. Um, I've always wanted to be a weatherman, so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about where Susa was. Okay, so, here we go. So, in case you didn't sort of, you know, many of you may know this, but for some of you uh, it might be interesting, because I found it interesting. So, imagine here is the Mediterranean, and in the Mediterranean you've got um, Cyprus, and then just to the east of Cyprus, on the coast of the Mediterranean, you've got Israel. So Mediterranean and Israel's here. And then um, just to the east of Israel is the, what was then called the Arabian Desert. And nobody kind of could go through there because it's, it's hot and sandy. So they used to um, have to walk around what's called the Fertile Crescent. So they basically could walk above and around the, the desert. And the reason it's called the Fertile Crescent is because starting in the mountains of Turkey, kind of a bit further north, and coming down are the two great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And in between those two rivers that come down is Babylon. And the reason, uh, sorry, and, and so the reason we call that land at that time Mesopotamia is that that word means between two rivers, Meso between and Potamia meaning rivers. So that's the whole, so that's where it is. And the reason I'm telling you all this is that Susa was just a little bit further down towards the Persian Gulf, about 100 miles north of the Persian Gulf at the bottom. So for the people, so for, for Nehemiah, who would have had to journey back uh, to, to Babylon, he would have had to walk north, kind of through or around Babylon, uh, th- you know, up through this fertile crescent, over the top of the desert, and then fall back, if you like, back into, into Israel. 
There you go. Um, in verse 2, it says, you know, it refers to Hanani, um, he said, and it's one of his brothers. And, and it probably was one of his physical, one of his actual <coughs> brothers. Um, so Hanani is short for Hananiah. And, um, uh, but we, d- we don't know the basis on which Hanani went to Jerusalem and came back. Just from reading general stuff, it, it, it's all, I think it's probable that, you know, the, so during that time, you know, it was very difficult to be a sole traveller, to wonder about where you wanted, because you'd have probably got into a lot of trouble and a lot of danger. And given the fact that we know that Nehemiah, we read that he was cupbearer to the king, Hanani was probably on some sort of official uh, journey to, to officially kind of report back what was going on. Um, and it gives us a little bit of insight, which I'll come on to later, as to you know, what it meant to be cupbearer to the king as well, because you know, clearly Nehemiah was able to ask Hanani, who was coming back to give his report. He was clearly one of the people who received the report you know, of what he'd seen, and he'd seen the gates being destroyed, and uh, uh, the, the gates had been burnt down, and the, the walls had been destroyed. So the, the remnant is clearly um, in Jerusalem, um, this is some of the remnants who've escaped Babylon, come back to Jerusalem, but they're in quite a parlous, difficult, uh, risky state. They're essentially a laughingstock uh, to their neighbours. You know, the, the walls have burnt down, the, the walls have been destroyed, the gates have burnt down. They have no protection at all. They'd be completely at risk of being attacked from, you know, anybody sort of travelling through that region or from the, the neighbouring city-states. Um, and so they were not in a good position at all. And I think that's probably why Nehemiah, who clearly doesn't appear to have been aware of all that uh, up until this point, then you know, has this instant, very emotional reaction uh, and instantly sort of you know, uh, wants to spend time and, and appeal to God. So they were in a, a pretty bad, in a pretty bad state. And then the rest, so, that, so that's kind of verses 1 to 3. Verses 4 to 11 give us, it's this extended prayer of Nehemiah. And, and it's really quite telling. So he was, he was shocked. So what did he do? He said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And there's just, there's just so much in there, really, that tells us about Nehemiah's response, how he emotionally felt about his community uh, that were in, in this terrible state in Jerusalem, about the state of the city, but also about his, respons- his relationship to God and his response as to, you know, what was his first natural immediate reaction? It was, it was, to, it was to weep and, and, to, and to start fasting and praying. And the fasting and praying is quite interesting. So there were, there were two other references that I read uh, that, that were specific about fasting and praying. You know, why, why would he fast and pray? So people often fasted and prayed uh, because they were mourning about the death of, of somebody or, or, or something. And so, for example, in Samuel 31, even though Samuel, uh, sorry, in Samuel 31, even though Saul, King Saul, had ended up being a little bit of a baddie guy and uh, you know a bit sort of troubled and troublesome, you know the, the community, or at least his followers, you know mourned uh, mourned his passing. Uh, when, he, when he died at the end, and, um, and they fasted and prayed for days. So it was, it, there was a, it was essentially a bit of ritual mourning in there. But also it was something that people often did and do now, you know, when we're making a petition, or we want to be close to God and we want to make a request of God. So for example, in Ezra chapter 8, um, 
Ezra is asking for safe passage. You know, he wants safe passage. He wants to be kept safe. He wants to be protected as he goes on a journey, and people and he brings people back um, um, to Jerusalem, and um, and so he also fasts and prays, and the people fast and pray. So it was, you know, that's why this was Nehemiah's sort of immediate reaction, if you like. It's a mourning, it's a, and it's a, it's a sadness, and also wanting to make a request of God. And, and I think it was quite telling as well, from verse 4 onwards, there's no more mention of Hanani or anything else. So it's not just a, a plan of action. You know, he didn't say, as soon as I heard this report from Hanani, we got together and put forward a four-point plan, we were going to go and see the king, and then we were, you know, this is, these are the things we were going to do. Uh, that wasn't it at all. It's all about his personal reaction uh, and his response to God, and, and essentially his prayer and his plea to God. And, and then towards the end, he starts, to, he starts to formulate, you know, what does all this mean and what am I going to have to actually do about what I've heard? And, um, and as Sally pointed out earlier on, it's clearly the prayer of an active sort of believer, somebody, you know, because he, he talks about the great and awesome God. And that really struck me as well. I love that. He said, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. I think that's really, it's lovely. It's almost poetic. It could be a psalm. And he described himself, you know, as his servant and he goes on and he, 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 he tells God what he's done. God knows what he's done, but he says, he says, um, you know, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. And he goes on, he confesses his sin, he confesses the sins of his fathers and his family and of Israel. And, and he recalls God's promise, his redemptive promise. So clearly, it's interesting. I don't know whether it's just because he's a learned man or maybe all the exiles were aware of their position, if you like, in the history of the people of Israel. But certainly Nehemiah is. He is, a, he is aware of what's going on here. He knows that the people have been exiled, because he mentions you know, what uh, Moses said, that you know, if, if, they, if the people fell away from God, they would be exiled, they would be scattered. Uh, but if they returned to God, they would be brought back and, and redeemed. And he, he's aware of his position. And, the, and it's often difficult, I think, for us to see our place in history. It's difficult to see the wood for the trees when you're in the middle of it. But certainly Nehemiah understands where they are at this point. And he reminds God, uh, not that he needs to, but he reminds God of his promise. And I think it's important um, for what he's praying for as well. He, 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 as I said, it wasn't just his plan of action. It wasn't just the, the physical sort of rebuilding, although he will go on later on to, to, to rebuild the, the physical walls um, and restore the gates of the city. But it's not just, God, please help me rebuild the walls because you know, we're in danger of being um, you know, attacked from, from the surrounding peoples. It's reminding God of his redemptive uh, promise to the people of Israel and their relationship with God. That's, that's what he's more interested in, at least immediately. And then, and then towards the end, in verse 11, um, towards the end of the prayer, you know, it's clearly forming in Nehemiah's mind what he needs to do. So in verse 4, we've got this immediate sort of visceral, emotional response. And then towards the end, I guess, you know, uh, following days of, of, of fasting and prayer, he knows what he has to do. And in verse 11, it says, O oh Lord... 
again, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success, and here we are, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So it's not really sort of explicit, but it's sort of hinting as to what he, need, he knows he's going to have to go and see the king and to raise this issue with the king. So give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he finishes, now I was cupbearer to the king. So I was thinking, if this was a Netflix series, you know, this would be kind of like you know, the, end of, the, the end of sort of episode one, wouldn't it? Now I was cupbearer to the king, and the credits come up, and it's like, ah, what happens next? Because what does that mean? Um, he's not really told us that before. He's just told us that he was in the city of Susa. He's told us that he received the report. He tells us about his prayer. We didn't know anything about his position, why he was in Susa, or what he was doing until this point. And he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And there are another number of things about sort of the historical sort of office of cupbearer. And, um, and initially I was thinking, it was probably just, well, initially I was thinking it's just you know, the person who drinks the wine you know, before the king would have it, and then if he drops down dead, then the king knows like not to drink any of that wine, and like you bring in the next cupbearer, you know. But it, 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 it looks like it's a lot more than that. Um, because probably even in those days, people would have known that not all poisons immediately kill you. Some poisons are, you know, work over a period of time. So anybody who was bring, looking after wine, serving wine to the king and bringing it to the king, it, he was giving his, you know, his um, personal assurance that the wine was okay, that it, wasn't, it didn't contain any poison at all, and it was fine. Um, and and in, you know, the, the, in the Persian court, you know, the king would have been a very grand individual. It was a, truly a court you know, with high-ranking officials, uh, and the cupbearer was probably in a position, it was actually in a more of a broad, trusted position, um, and could even have been an advisor to the king. He might have even had the ear of the king. And, um, well, and later on in, in chapter 2, you know, the, the, the king indicates that you know, he recognises a change in Nehemiah's demeanour. So clearly they, did have a, they had a relationship such that, you know, that the king recognised something was troubling Nehemiah, which, which, which we'll see next week in, in chapter 2. So he was somebody who was trusted by the king, would have had regular steady access to the king, but yet the king is still this... You know, it's, it's a risky proposition to raise things before the king. And clearly that was troubling, starting to trouble Nehemiah because he said, because he asks God for success. So it's not a slam dunk that he's going to go and talk to the king who's his mate and he's going to grant everything he wants. No, it was a risky proposition. He asks for success and he says, and he asks for God's mercy in the sight of the king. So it, it's, still, it's still a serious proposition. Okay, so that's so in, in, in total then, so looking at the chapter sort of and, and looking back at everything that we've read, you know, what have we learned about Nehemiah and, um, and, uh, and what do we see? So the first thing I thought is, is um, Nehemiah clearly takes his job seriously and he respects the king and his position with the king and his relationship. We also get a strong sense of Nehemiah's faith in God, his understanding of scripture, um, of the people of Israel and their covenant relationship with God. Um, we see that Nehemiah had a, uh, an immediate uh, emotional reaction um, to the report from Jerusalem and what had happened. Um, and, and also that that prompted uh, a response 
from him that was very real and tangible in relationship to his, you know, he didn't say a quick sort of bullet prayer and get back to his job. He mourned, uh, he wept, he fasted for days, he thought about, he, he, he petitioned God, you know, and then after a number, after a period of time, we don't know, a period of days, he knew what he had to do and then he, uh, he asked for help in doing it. So what can we what can we learn? You know, what does this all mean for us? Well, you know, clearly we're all you know, we're called to live in the world. You know, to you know, we are Christians, uh, but we're called to live in the world, and and we need to adapt our approach and also be sensitive to those around us. We've all had situations where you know we don't it, it's we're not quite sure kind of how to you know, how people will receive um, you know offers of help or guidance or Christian. Uh, wisdom uh, or words and sometimes that can be tricky so we need to be sensitive to those around us uh, but also I think we've, we've, there's a, uh, a clear example from Nehemiah as to what you know, as believers you know, we should be doing when we encounter difficulty, when we're in a position uh, of uh, where, where we're anxious um, you know, there's, there's nothing better than to get the fundamentals right and to, uh, to pray and to spend time with God um, and, and not to get caught up in the busyness, you know. As I say, he didn't just decide to, you know, call, uh, you know, uh, his brother together, set up an action plan, and, and go and do it. No, he spent time with God, and he was serious about that relationship. So we have to prepare ourselves before before we act. And we're not all called to be, you know. There's only one Nehemiah, and we're not all called to be Nehemiah. And and in this world today, I guess, you know, there's only, you know, there's a few. People, you know, like, I don't know, uh, Greta Thunberg or somebody, you know, there are very few people who appear on Newsnight or, you know, sort of starts a major social international campaign. So we're not all called to do that, but we are all called to act in some way. You know, we might not be Nehemiah, but we might be able to assist Nehemiah in some way into, you know, later on into rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. You know, we're able to be part of, you know, that community in rebuilding and it's very, very easy. I was, think, I was reflecting on my own response to things sometimes. It's very easy to be sympathetic uh, in your mind to things you see on television or horrible things that are going on in the world or when you receive a pamphlet through the mail on persecuted Christians and you, know, and you might feel terrible about that and isn't that, you know, isn't that awful? You might even, you know, I might even send some money at some point. You know, but, that's, but for people who have some money to give, that's a very easy thing to do. I mean, it's, uh, you know, again, you know, is that... Is that enough? Um, and the other thing I've reflected on as well is that, uh, and I'm trying to personally get better than this, is to, you know, we often, I think, um, hear God's small voice in our lives. You know, we hear about something's happening to one of our colleagues, part of our church community, or somebody at work, or wherever it might be, somebody on our, in our neighbourhood, and we think, oh, it would be really nice if I got some flowers, spoke to them, gave them a phone call, did something... Um, but often, at least for me, that thought can, in the busyness of the day, it sort of flies away, and sometimes I simply forget, honestly. And, and so I'm, you know, I, I was talking to Kim about this the other day, I'm, I'm personally trying to respond to that a little bit better and to act, you know, even in a small way, to that small voice, you know, before it, before it vanishes. And so I think, you know, there's an analogy here between, you know, what's happening in Jerusalem and the need to rebuild the foundations, uh, 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 rebuild the walls, rebuild the gates of Jerusalem, to us having to maybe, you know, help rebuild the foundation of our Christian community here in the UK, in Billericay and in the UK. 
You know, we, we can read interesting books, we can uh, read the latest sort of Christian bestseller, uh, we can go to church every week, and they're all fantastic things to do. But what are we doing to help change the world in which we live? Um, so it's, it's something to think about, I think. You know, how do we keep building our church community, and how do we build you know, the Christian community in our country? So it's about, you know, how can we build up Billericay? What do we all do, you know, to help support the people of Billericay? What does God want us to pray about? And what does God want us to do? Um, and, and I was thinking, you know, if that there's some power in, you know, in collective action, even lots of small collective actions. So whether that's responding to that small voice that we hear, that prompt we get from God to be responsive to a situation that somebody we hear about is in or we hear about something that we, we know we should do something, well we should actually do it so it's a matter of so just sort of turning that dial up a bit, you know, maybe not all the way to becoming a Nehemiah, although if you feel called to that please do but one or two notches you know, just let's dial up that sort of Christian social action dial you know, how could we do that? You know, it might be, it might be giving money, uh, if we have the ability to do so. It might be writing a letter to our MP. It might be speaking to somebody on the town council. It might be something in the social sphere that we can do through our Christian belief that actually might make a difference to our, to our town and our community. Um, and that's, that's, um, that was a real challenge for me as I thought about what I might need to do differently. And I think if we could all do that, you know, what a difference that would make to, to Billericay. So in the coming weeks uh, of this series, we're going to see how uh, Nehemiah um, um, approached the king, uh, the response of the king, um, and then you know, how the community um, came together to rebuild the walls, and, um, and then how the community itself was rebuilt through that collective action. Okay. I'd just like to say a quick prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for being able to go through and read um, this first chapter of Nehemiah. Father, Lord, we just ask you to, to prompt our hearts in some way as to what this might mean for us here in Billericay and in our church community. Lord, we often hear your voice. We often uh, get the prompt uh, to, to respond in a way that you would want us to. But it's, it's so easy sometimes, Lord, to uh, let the busyness of our lives um, take those thoughts away. So, Lord, I just ask that you would... Uh, Holy Spirit, that you would come uh, to us in the next uh, days, weeks and months, Lord, and you would be our prompt, and that we would act in your name, Father, that we, in, in, small, in many, many small ways, Lord, show a glimpse of your love uh, and your glory, Lord, to those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.